Hello folks, Norm here. Very special two-part episode coming at you this week as part of our relaunch pre-launch, outlining something a lot of you have asked about or otherwise might be totally unaware of. You've heard a bit about where the Drabblecast is going, hopefully with your help in the years ahead. We thought this being our 10-year anniversary, 11th year actually, but you know, (laughs) not counting that last little year, that never happened. We should do a behind-the-scenes retrospective from the very beginning to give you an idea of our evolution, how we got here, our humble beginnings. Before we get into things with part one of our Drabblecast 10 Years of Strange Stories retrospective, just a quick reminder as part of our pre-launch campaign here to connect with us on our website, Drabblecast.org, where you can join the campaign of Drabble's world domination by simply typing in your email address, and where you can take it a step further by donating to the Drabblecast, if you like, through the support links there. We appreciate whatever you can give. It all comes at certainly an important time in Drabblecast's history. All right. On to the episode, shall we? Things like award-winning podcasts don't just fall out of trees, folks. Unless there's some goddamn awesome trees I don't know about. In the next two episodes, you'll hear all sorts of behind-the-scenes things that you didn't know about the Drabblecast and our origins. You'll hear from past editors and staff, past influencers, long-time listeners and authors, warts and all. You'll get an exclusive look at us through two different phases, our squamous, abominable birth and our thrashing, wild, and glistening young adulthood. Watch us stumble awkwardly and adorably through our teenage years into our gangly and decidedly menacing adulthood, where we somehow win awards, garner fame and listenership, and then vanish off the goddamn face of the earth. Where did we go? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Where did we go? Where am I now? Let's just pick up right now as if nothing ever happened. See, at Drabblecast, our goal has never really been anything other than what we are, which is, as our mission statement says, a place that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. And even though a lot has changed throughout the years, and certainly a lot's improved, we've always tried to hold tight to four core values. Number one, strangeness to pursue that which has been seldom known of, that which has scantly been heard, seen, or talked about. Eagerly, we commit to the extraordinary, the fantastic, the stomach-turning, and mind-altering. Number two, charisma. To inspire the enthusiasm, talents, and strange creativities buried inside those around us, while showing them an equal degree of respect and sense of humor. Number three, quality. To have our efforts in every area result in a product that is both distinguished and consistently superior to that of our peers. We love what we do and this reflects in our work. And number four, community. No man is an island, except as I've mentioned before, island man. Our goal is to build a profitable commonwealth of creativity and weirdness. In our work, we strive to be glistening, throbbing, respectful, open-minded, inclusive, and collaborative as often as possible, folks. Pay no mind to the ovipositor. Unless, of course, that turns you on. And then, yes, please present your mind ever so gently to the heaving membrane below marked with a sign that reads, Heaving Membrane, parentheses, ovipositor. 
So come back with me now, will you? Back to before February 2007, when Travelcast was hardly a speck in your weird-ass mother's eye. Yes, your mother was involved. Like I said, you're gonna want to stay tuned to part one of Travelcast, 10 Years of Strange Stories. Nikita Koshkin on classical guitar for his junior recital based on the short story The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, one of my all-time favorites. An unnamed narrator approaches the House of Usher on a dark, dull, and soundless day. This house, the estate of his boyhood friend, Roderick Usher, is gloomy and mysterious. The narrator observes that the house seems to have absorbed an evil and diseased atmosphere from the decaying trees and murky ponds around it. The narrator spends several days trying to cheer up Roderick. He listens to Roderick play the guitar and make up words for his lunatic melodies, and the narrator reads him stories, but he cannot lift Roderick's spirit. Soon, Roderick posits his theory that the house itself is unhealthy, just as the narrator supposes at the beginning of the story. The narrator decides to read Roderick a medieval romance called The Mad Tryst by Sir Lancelot Canning. Who entereth herein a conqueror? hath been. Who slayeth the dragon, the shield he shall win. And Ethelred uplifted his mace, and struck upon the head of the dragon, which fell before him and gave up his pesty breath, with a shriek so horrid and harsh, that Ethelred had feigned to close his ears with his hands against the dreadful noise of it, and like whereof was never before heard. As the narrator reads, he notices that Roderick has slumped over in his chair, muttering to himself. The narrator approaches Roderick and listens to what he's saying. Roderick reveals that he believes that they have buried his sister Madeline alive, that she is trying to escape. He yells that she is standing behind the door. Madman, he says, we have put her living behind the tomb. The wind blows open the door and confirms Roderick's fears. Madeline stands in white robes, bloodied from her struggle. She attacks Roderick as the life drains from her, and Roderick dies of fear. The narrator flees from the house, and as he escapes, the entire house cracks along the frame and crumbles to the ground. I was getting my master's degree in music performance at the Peabody Conservatory of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, when I started the Drabblecast, February 2007. And as you can tell, I've always loved good storytelling, with or without words. Every day I spent practicing endlessly in tiny practice rooms, perfecting solo guitar music. Hey, I know, right? Cry me a river, what a life. But hear me out. I loved creating music like this, what you're listening to now, Barrios's Waltz Number no. 3, but I had kind of a different gig stewing in my head and going on the side. Nobody really knew about it, and, well, he was working on an album, a full bluegrass album of songs that weren't exactly going to fit right in there with the stuffy recital hall. 
Remember the days when men rode waves to hunt down a mother whale. Those ocean waves sent men to graves, made widows weep and wail. All for the glory of a good drinking story and the cheese of a humpback whale. It was a self-titled album with two squids on the front, and I'm not sure what I was planning on accomplishing aside from hopefully just confusing some people and maybe entertaining a handful. There's a track about, yes, about milking whales for cheese, about alien parasites taking over a small town, about Jesus DNA being discovered and an unfortunate catastrophic theme park being made with various cloned Yesus wielding god powers, much in line with John Hammond's original dream and nightmare, of course. There's a song about going on a date and coming home to the girl's house that night only to find a fetus discarded in her kitchen. And then there's what eventually became our theme music on the Drabblecast, Rutabaga, a song about a couple of mobsters that... This is for Johnny Cubano, and this is for Pedro the Stitch. And this is for running us out to the cops, you filthy son of a bitch. But just then the yeah, you'll have to buy the album to find that one out. Search for Norm Sherman on iTunes or Amazon, and it was good knowing you. The original reason I started the Drabblecast was to promote music, my music, not stories. But you know what hooked me, folks? What changed everything? I love reading fiction, I love writing fiction, but maybe more than anything, I love performing fiction. And short story writing and songwriting, it's not a whole lot different in my mind, honestly. Short and flash fiction writing specifically, I mean. And the act of storytelling, of performance, I love the weird adventures it never fails to pull you into, right there along with the listener or the audience. Here's a story. That's me from high school, as Peter Pan my senior year, a role I had absolutely no issue wearing tight green spandex for and sparkly makeup, when otherwise you might find I'd object generally to the imposition. Now, a whole lot of people don't know this, and unfortunately that's the last time I'll ever be able to say that because I'm saying it to a podcast now with 30,000 people listening, but I had to be wired to a complex pulley system for this show that allowed me to fly multiple places and heights across a set at different moments across the show. The pulley was fastened to a harness that I had to wear up through my shoulders and down under my nads, and every time I was launched into the air by our 300-pound math teacher, Mr. Massey, real name, he'd jump from a ladder backstage with a rope in his hand, and there was this immense pressure in my scrotum that launched me from the ground. Enough immense pressure, mind you, and it doesn't take a whole lot for those of you out there with scrotums that I began to look into solutions for 
a potential testicular injury, shall we say, which wound up taking the form of maxi pads, which I purchased from Winn-Dixie. So in addition to wearing makeup, throwing pixie dust at people to make them fly, and wearing green tights, I also had on maxi pads each night, which always ran the risk of working their way down the legs of my tights as I pranced to and fro about stage singing. Stuff like this. folks, judge me, but you can't judge my balls, can ya? At least not most of ya. When I went to college, I got serious, and my balls ached for something new and unsettling, which is why, amid concert recitals, studies of music theory, a part-time bartending gig, and, you know, all that college life stuff, I began the Drabblecast, because I was also recording in my bedroom an album about aliens, nipples, and Jesus clones, and I needed an outlet, and my MacBook Pro and iWeb provided that. Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast. This is a podcast featuring flash fiction of an atypical nature. These are stories that you won't hear anywhere else by very strange people. I'm your host, Norman Sherman. I'll be narrating these stories. Please feel free to send in your short fiction of an atypical nature to goatkeeper at hotmail.com. We'll do our best to get it on here. Our story today is The Coughing Dog by Norman Sherman. Yes, that's me. I thought it'd be delightfully pathetic to read my own story for the very first episode of the Drabblecast. So, without further ado, The Coughing Dog by Norman Sherman. We never expected snow when we came home for Christmas. It was Georgia. We gave up on white Christmases right about when we stopped believing in Santa Claus. This Christmas, however, completely abandoned any pretense of even a light frost. We got out of the car after driving home through the chilly night from Baltimore to be surrounded by an amiable welcoming party of 80-degree morning air. Now this is what I'm talking about, I said to my brother. Nobody ever says anything about the upside to global warming, these pleasant little warm December mornings. I'll spray some cans of aerosol to that, replied Adam, as he pulled his luggage from the back of the station wagon. I wonder where everyone is, I asked. Oh, I just talked to Mom on the phone. She said she's picking up Zoe from the vet. Uh, Be back pretty soon. I sighed as I slung my backpack over my shoulder and locked the car door. Ah, little Zoe. You know, this will probably be the last time she'll ever be here when we come home. Oh, whatever, said Adam. Little Dee's got some spunk in her yet. I don't know, man. Last time I came home, that cough of hers was pretty bad. Yeah, that's what I heard, said Adam. Have you seen how fat she's gotten? Pop sent me a picture. That medication Mom has to give her makes her constantly want to eat. She's huge now. She doesn't even look like a Shih Tzu. She looks like a bloated, hairy, little decrepit monster on tiny little legs. And why has Zoe always liked you best? I asked. I hope you don't say things like that to her face. I'm just playing, laughed Adam. She's still cute, just kind of in a swollen, feeble, ancient demonic sort of way. Later that morning, Mom came home with Zoe. 
Adam stopped watching TV and rolled over onto the floor as the little dog hobbled over to him and collapsed with a gravelly grunt, belly exposed for a long-anticipated rubbing. Well, hey. Hey, Ma, I said, kissing her cheek. You boys have a safe drive? Ugh, a long drive, especially for me. Adam slept most of the way. Bull crap, called Adam from across the room, his voice rising from an orgy of heaving grunts, pants, and snorts from our little dog as Adam scratched his ears and rubbed her belly. What's for lunch, I asked. I've got some chicken and dumplings warming up, replied Mom. Pop should be home in half an hour. Just then, Zoe let out several thick, mucousy coughs, her back arching, her eyes bulging beyond belief with each painful heave. Adam, don't get her too worked up. Her cough is getting really bad, said Mom. She's really fat, I said, only realizing how obvious it sounded after the words were out of my mouth. It's that new medication from the vet. It makes her act really weird sometimes. It really worries me. No more belly rubs for you, little Dee, said Adam. We were all in the kitchen eating lunch. My dad was stressed out about work, but still happy to have us home, and at least trying to be in a good mood. So you guys still sharing a place up there, he asked. Yep, he's still on my couch, I replied. I just found a place last week close to school, though, said Adam. If it works out, I can sign a lease in the next few weeks after we get back. When does school start back? The 15th, but I have to be back for work on the 10th. Just then, Zoe, who had been surveying us from the floor, keeping a careful eye out to see if any scraps of food fell, lurched forward and started hacking deeply, bracing her legs out to support her weight as she struggled to find air between the thick, wet coughs. Quack! Quack! Adam grimaced and looked down at the dog with sympathetic eyes, while conversation resumed above the table. Oh, what about you, Matthew? When do you have to go back to work? Oh, why are you making me think about that now? My break just started. <coughs> Something sharp and wet, like the sound of a soaked roll of toilet paper being slammed against a wall, broke Zoe's coughing. Yeah, um, I'll probably start back up the second week of... My voice was cut off by Zoe, punching out a gurgly attempt at a bark that was also half-fluid-filled cough. <laughs> Adam's eyes filled with excitement. She said, Mama! Wow, exclaimed Mom. I haven't heard her do that in years. Are you sure it wasn't just her coughing? No, it was really clear. Mah! Laughter erupted around the table. Mom had taught Zoe to say Mama back when the pup was young, but it was always more of a joke because it barely sounded like the real words. Zoe continued. Her pace and volume increased, almost as if at first she was just discovering her vocal cords or trying to remember some ancient tongue. And now she'd gotten it. The laughter seemed to stop at once, as Zoe's grisly proclamation continued in short but loud rhythmic pulses, seeming unnatural and unreal. What's wrong with her? Adam asked, having to pitch his voice high above the chanting Shih Tzu. It must be the medication. 
Yeah, it's that new medication from the vet. I'm taking her off of it, replied Mom. What should we do? I asked. Just then, Zoe stopped barking. Pop started up. Thank God. But he was cut off by Zoe once again. Hi. Hi. Was that a stutter? Was Zoe trying to speak? There was urine pooling beneath a talking dog. Her bulging, mucousy eyes rolled up into the back of her head. She stood rigid, defiant. I am Legion, for we are many. We require new flesh. The moment felt frozen in time. I couldn't pull air into my lungs. I couldn't blink away the dryness in my eyes. None of us moved or spoke. Nothing moved or spoke, except whatever was behind Zoe's voice. We require new flesh, it repeated. The creature's head lolled to the side. Blood and saliva ran from its mouth and thickly cascaded to the tile floor. No, no, not me, whispered Mom. In my haze of shock, I turned to look at my mother. What was she saying? Her eyes were transfixed on the bleeding thing before us, as if it were speaking into her mind. But it just sat there, eyes of solid white, staring into space. She screamed, Dear God, not me! Zoe arched her back and readied herself for one final cough. that was our story. That's a clip of our very first episode, The Coughing Dog, which I wrote myself, recorded, published, and produced all on the same laptop, because that's the kind of vision, I guess, that Steve Jobs or other brilliant people back then saw for content producers back in 2007. And there were a lot of shitty content producers, myself included, but not as many as today. (laughs) For historical reference, 2007 was the year that the iPhone was first just released. Charlie bit some other poor baby bastard's finger. Prince performed the most badass Super Bowl special ever with a guitar that looked like a dick. An alien dick, which is what most guitars look like if anyone asks you. J.K. Rowling died. Wait, I mean, Anna Nicole Smith died, but also Harry Potter died. And Time Magazine just named Vladimir Putin, that's how I pronounce it, Putin, Vladimir Putin, Person of the Year. while Obama was still a full year away from being elected to his first term, and Trump was busy going head-to-head in the ring with Vince McMahon in WWE's Battle of the Billionaires. Wow, suddenly it doesn't seem like just the Drabblecast changed a lot, huh? I didn't think we'd ever have tens of thousands of listeners from something I was producing and would continue to be producing for the next four years from my living room. But when your maxi starts working its way down your tights, you know what you do, folks? You roll with it. And that's that audio right there from the coughing dog. That's what we thought sounded okay back then, folks. You can tell I still had a lot to learn in the years ahead. It's not what I'd ever want my classical guitar playing to sound like in a recorded studio album, but that's because I took that seriously, and not podcasting. Hell, I was paying out the ass to go to school for one of those things, and most of the known world didn't know about the other. Can you blame us? 
And I say us because upon starting this endeavor, I enlisted my two best friends, Kendall Marchman and Luke Coddington, as co-editors. And by co-editors, I mean co-writers, because, see, in those early years, we wrote most, if not all, the stories ourselves. And if we didn't write them, we bugged our friends to. Peppered between episodes 1 through 25, you see stories that we either wrote ourselves or straight up harassed and blackmailed our buddies into writing for us. All as we found our way and our style, our systems, how to work slush piles and have open submissions, about contracts, about editorial etiquette, it wasn't until about episode 10, A Little Black Death by Lance Arthur, that we finally published a story that we liked from someone else that we didn't know. Everyone grew up with a scary family in their neighborhood. I suppose nowadays that definition might include the people who voided their condo agreement by painting their garage door in an unacceptable color. On the other end of the spectrum, there's probably the house that always has those annoying drive-by shootings. But when I was a kid, you had to go quite a bit out of the everyday to be the scary family. And the winner on my block, hands down, was the abnormal Adamses known as the Jenkins family. The Jenkins family was nothing if not colorful. And I mean colorful in the same way that scabs and bruises are. The mom was skeletal, a haggard woman in a bad mood as if someone had just stabbed her in the hip with a fondue fork. We never saw Mr. Jenkins. Rumor had it that he was buried in the basement. The elder boy of the family had, as you might expect, an El Camino on cement blocks in the driveway. His name was Randy, and he had that sort of whip-snap body as if he were constructed of beef jerky. We all wanted to be like Randy. The younger brother was Greg. He would come out and play with the rest of us on occasion. We would pretend to be characters from Star Trek or the Wild Wild West. I was never Kirk or James West. I was always Bones or Artemis Gordon. Fat, sad, and lonely. Even then, I felt destined to be the co-star of my own life. But not Greg. Greg Jenkins was insane. Greg had two hobbies. One was marbles. He was very good at marbles. Almost a marble shark. He carried them in a purple velvet sack with yellow writing on the side that said Crown Royal. He'd tie its satin strands around the belt loop of his tough skins, and those marbles would hang like a second set of testicles off his hip, clacking and swinging and announcing his prepubescent manhood. His second hobby was why he was insane, and what led to the scariest moment of my young life. Greg Jenkins collected Black Widow spiders. He kept them in jars in his garage, row after row of hand. We never paid the guy, don't know what he's up to. Wish him the best of luck. That's not to say those early years weren't fun, folks. In Travelcast 1 through 50, you really hear us finding our specific brand of weirdness. You hear Drabble news segments about immense monster hogs, and you hear a two-part special we did explaining the insane ways that ducks reproduce. You hear songs, you hear our quality and audio production improve, and you hear me find my Norm Sherman voice, so to speak. These were our early years, when we hadn't yet started paying authors, because even that very notion was inconceivable to us. How? How would we pay these guys? Until, well, people started donating to us just because they liked what we were trying to do. And not just what we were trying to do, but what we were doing. And with that support, we could start paying authors, starting at a measly 1.5 cents a word. 
Really, the two guys that epitomize this era of the Drabblecast are my two best friends, Luke and Kendall, who I eventually fired because they were good for nothing, but certainly helped us get that kite in the air. After Luke and Kendall's editorial run with Drabblecast, which ended in around 2010, we had certainly closed a noticeable chapter in Drabblecast's life, and it was my honor to interview those two sons of bitches right here for this special. Here we go. I'm uh, talking here to uh, Kendall and Luke, our uh, original editorial team for the Drabblecast, way back in the day in, uh, in 2007. Our first episode was The Coughing Dog uh, on February 21st, 2007. Uh, just, wow, way back memory lane there. It was a story about uh, a little Shih Tzu that we had back then, and it's this devilish cough that it had, and I wrote it, this idea that my brother and I came up with about there being some sort of demonic spirit possessing the thing, and it's this cute dog that had demons in it, and just kind of ran from there but um yeah i got these two brilliant friends of mine best friends from college that we decided to start this this podcast didn't really know what we were doing still don't really know what we're doing all these years later but uh it's over a decade and i've got them here on the, the recorded call how are you guys doing i'm all right tonight norm how are you I'm good. That's Kendall. He's affectionately known as his monkey because his, uh, his, both his characteristics personally and uh, visually are that of a simian. And so it has stuck it's quite cool. well. And then, Luke, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm uh, doing pretty well. Uh, I don't have much to say for myself. Probably should have accomplished more in the years since we started that uh, podcast. <laughs> the full decade? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a good place to go. What, what are you guys uh, loosely doing these days since then? I know back then we were all in college, so we didn't really have lives. You guys didn't have wives and kids and stuff yet, and here we are. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe it's best to keep this anonymous. I'm just a <laughs> random guy that looks like a monkey. To, uh, I, I, I have fun. I still like to read. I still like uh, weird fiction. And I still like uh, my friends, uh, Norm and Luke. Yes, and Kendall's also, uh, he's married now. He, he met a wonderful woman, and he's uh, also one of the few that from our generation that doesn't have a kid yet. So we can, we can count on that with each other. They're that brotherhood of not having that extra responsibility in our lives, whereas Luke has gone down that path. And what are you up to these days, Luke? Yeah, well, yeah, I've got a couple kids, uh, which is why I spend my days. I'm one of those uh, firefighters that, like, parachute in. You know, when there's a really dangerous fire going on. Nice. Like hot shot. Hot shot. Yeah, hot shot. That's right. That's what he calls. Yeah. So just hoping I'll die one day doing that, you know, and deal with the kids anymore. Doing what you love, you know, just putting out fires, saving lives. That's really honorable there. There's nothing to do with science or research that I always thought you were going to go into those fields, but turns out. Yeah, no. Yeah, so we were just talking earlier about how uh, when we started the the podcast, I know that it was mostly originally a platform for me to try and sell music, and then it turned into the story thing. And we like to fancy ourselves somewhat weird and creative. And at that point in our lives, before we were burdened by babies and fires and saving lives and things, it was it was all about the weird stories. And the Drabblecast kind of provided a way for us to uh, write short stories and have them published out on the internet back in 2007 when that wasn't a huge thing yet and uh we we basically wrote the first shoot 10 stories or so because we didn't have any submissions and we were trying to build a system to accept them and uh i think the second story now was the third story was luke's story next stop which is a classic the sound of giggling drifts into my recently assaulted ears leading me to conclude that some teenagers must have been holding the train up for a tardy friend it must be nice to be able to laugh like that 
to actively enjoy oneself, even at the expense of other people's convenience. Those little shits don't even know what they've got. The muscles in my neck twinge slightly as I try to recall the last time I was that carefree. This damn job and that woman who used to be my wife have left me in a daze, unable to relax, yet unable to accomplish. Now here I am, jealous of some young punk who can hold a metro door open and yearning for just one more morning in a warm bed with my wife. The now familiar tightening in my chest creeps in. Anxiety. Almost too much to bear. I close my eyes. It's all in my head. I know it is. Just have to concentrate. Try to relax, like the doctor said. Closing my eyes again. Slumping back, gripping my left arm. Shivering a little. It's all in my head. It's all in my head. Suddenly, my mind and body are snapped back to reality. Cold sweat seeming to freeze on my forehead. Despite the steady sound of unseen suburbs rushing by outside, I hear something else from the inside of the car. It's subtle at first, then grows more audible. I can make out the shuffling of cloth, then the rasping of metal against a hard surface, and then that giggling again. But there's nobody in this car. The shuffling and rasping comes closer, and the giggling first sporadic, then prolonged. It's not sinister, it's worse. It's almost gleeful. It sounds insane in this dingy metal room. Too late, I realize the noise is originating near the floor. I look downward just in time to see five cold, dirty fingers slip around my right ankle. Two crazed, bloodshot eyes roll up to meet mine. Grunting, giggling, breathing through a thick layer of saliva and subway dirt, he just stares at me at first. For some reason, all I can do is look at those fingernails, imagining them burrowing into my flesh. They're dirty, chipped, and yellow. Urine flows down my leg, but I can't move. It's as if those manic, bloody eyes are holding me down. My body starts to shake uncontrollably, and immediately I regret it because that crazy smile starts to fade from his dirt-streaked face. I can <laughs> see you. You know, he stumbles out in a squeaky, broken voice. A small moan escapes my lips. His other hand is sliding up the floor towards me. I feel you, brother, he mumbles almost to himself, and then he begins untying my shoe. Your brother, so carefree, he's, he's just down at the next stop. Oh, brother, you're drag. I think he raised his voice. Do you remember that one, Luke? Oh, yeah. I worked uh, many, many long nights trying to write that uh, and was pretty proud of it. I thought, uh, I thought we'd be writing stories way longer than we were, really. Well, I think the impetus was we, we realized that we couldn't really write all these stories. Every week. Every week, yeah, it was pretty pretty intense. It was fun while it lasted, though. And uh, in the in the future years ahead, uh, I know at least two of us in this conversation put together a pen name and tricked each other into <laughs> accepting stories that we didn't know were uh, actually the other one. Uh, and that caused some controversy. We'll get into a sec. But next stop was one of my favorite stories because I, I didn't really know Luke in that level yet. I mean, I didn't know that he was a completely weird and deranged human being. And I guess you were. I mean, it's a story about somebody on a train that. Uh, feels somebody's 
hand kind of just touched them under the, the seat, which is a really weird place to start. But I got, did you have a commute or something? You were living in D.C. then, right? And so that must have came from there. I did. Uh, I was taking the Baltimore Metro every morning, and uh, it was uh, it could get a little tight on there. So, yeah. If something like that happens, if somebody touches your ankle and it's a weird creep and he's sitting under your chair, how do you handle that? Yeah, right. And uh, just like uh, you're kind of trapped on there. So whenever anything weird happens, you just kind of like uh, act as pleasantly as you can. I don't know. That's my strategy anyway. Really fits the, the title next stop, too, because really, if somebody's grabbing your ankle underneath a chair, any stop is next stop, you know? Just want to get the hell off that thing. Well, I don't know. It depends how it goes, I guess. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And then the next story we had, I remember, I didn't know what to expect, but this this one really launched the the culture, I think, of the first early Drabblecast episodes, which were uh, admittedly <laughs> poop and, you know, very childly uh, related kind of content that was, uh, you know, sometimes debated, but also much highly loved. And it was Uncle Ollie's gift that Kendall wrote. Um, and I don't, you know, we don't want to go into spoilers on that one, because really the the end of that story is where you, you don't see that coming. But where did that come from, Kendall? It was about a, a guy that was looking for his, uh, a Spider-Man comic that was hard to find, right? I got in my car and drove to Santa Fe as fast as a boy on prom night. I kept telling myself that I was just road weary. I recalled reading stories where restless travelers experienced unexplained events on the road. I just needed sleep, that's all. Hearing my frantic knock, Aunt Dinah came to the door. You look like you've seen a ghost, she said, and tried to rush me to bed. I insisted on seeing the collection first. It can wait until the morning, dearie. I'd really like to see it now, Aunt Dinah. It's just that I've come all this way thinking of it. I'm sure I wouldn't fall asleep until I saw it. She conceded and led me down the hall to Uncle Ollie's storage room. My jaw dropped when I saw the expensive collection and its careful cataloging. I instinctively began to thumb through the Spider-Man box. Didn't Uncle Ollie have the first Spider-Man? I asked her. Oh, yes, dear. That was his favorite comic book of all time. Uh, took it with him wherever he went. Hmm. Well, it's not here. Oh, that's odd. Well, we'll have a look in the morning. As she led me down the hall to the spare bedroom, I tried to make conversation. Aunt Dinah, I know it's hard, but my mom wanted me to tell you, if you need anything... Oh, I'm all right, she said. Ollie and I had a good life. We both knew it wouldn't be long after the cancer metastasized. Though the doctors are still confounded at why he died of intestinal failure, they said that isn't common at all. He never was one to fit inside the mold. Had to find his own way, I replied. Yeah, she said tearfully. Well, here you go. You might want to close the window. I, I hear it could rain tonight. I thanked her as she left the room. The bed was comfortable, and I was hoping to fall asleep quickly. Unfortunately, the night's events kept running through my mind. What was going on in that diner? Where was that blasted comic book? The longer I searched for answers, the more crazed I became. I knew that I couldn't wait any longer to find that damn comic book. I threw on a coat and snuck out to my car. I knew there was only one place that that comic could be. As I pulled into the graveyard, rain started coming down in sheets. I parked in front of Uncle Oliver's recently dug grave and shined my headlights on it. Yeah, um, yeah, I can't quite really say where it came from. I, I, I just think uh, of comics and uh, clearly the Twilight Zone, looking back on that story. So, yeah, I would say it's probably just a rip off of all those things, put in a blender and uh, 
I think it's a fun story. I re-listened to it the other day and um, just trying to remember the good old days. And I remember going to your house or you going to mine. And that was when we had to record like sound effects and Foley and stuff like on the spot. I couldn't dub them in later. So we had like triangles and dings and doorbells and they were all perfectly timed. And it was basically a live recording of that whole story. It was pretty fun. Yeah, I remember that too. It's pretty, I think it took quite a while. And uh, I really at that point realized that I missed my calling that well, not I guess I didn't really miss it. There just haven't been any new police academy movies where I could work my <laughs> sound skills in the last twenty years. And then in episode ten, we had our first uh, story that was from what we considered the slush, you know, and it was called A Little Black Death. It was about a spider uh, freaking some guy out. And I suppose at that point, my memory's not very good, but we opened up to submissions on the internet. We must have got people you know believe it or not writing stories and submitting them back in 2007 and we must have read them and decided that that story was one we wanted to put on our our website from somebody we didn't know and uh do you guys remember the system that we kind of put together who did what and how how we how we worked all that uh i remember the start was pretty innocuous we weren't getting that many stories yeah and so it just wasn't a big deal to kind of i think you know whoever read it first would say you know i like the story and maybe even like we had a system where like each story got read at least twice or something but right that pretty quickly went out the window when we started getting like uh, dozens of stories a day probably some usually by the same author that would just yeah don't uh dozens of stories to us i seem to remember that i didn't really do much <laughs> i kind of have yeah I, well yeah. you can admit that now i think the majority of what i did was argue that i had done more <laughs> right which I think it was good motivation for uh, the other editors to uh, do the work so they could feel like they were better than me. That was definitely <laughs> I think yeah. I remember that. You just jogged my memory. So it was the three of us had equal slush reading kind of ability, and we also had a vote. And then, as, it, as Kendall mentioned, we started getting multiple submissions from multiple people, and it became much work. And then I distinctly remember Luke taking on the role of, like, the jokingly never gets his, his stuff done and still having that veto vote. And so we'd be like, between me and Kendall, we'd try and be convincing Luke, like, hey, read this one, vote this one or whatnot, because it was so precious to have Luke read any story at that point with his... Uh, yeah, I did feel like I had some some uh, some sway in that regard. Like, is this story really good or not? And then if I actually read it all the way through and liked it, maybe that was the... Yeah, in a sense, you kind of became chief editor because Kendall and I were doing all the legwork, reading these stories and passing them up, and you would be like, yeah, I finished that one. I like that narrative. Yeah, well, it wasn't intentional. So, kids, if you're out there listening, just don't do anything, and eventually uh, you will rise up the ranks. <laughs> the key to success <laughs> the dynamic of power was funny that i remember back in the day because there's there's two actual specific examples of of the three of us trying to negotiate the early podcast waters as as it was growing and we had more submissions <laughs> you know of like how to do this and who's doing what and uh one of them was the was the black and white animals trilogy that we put together and I don't know if, Luke, you remember the day that it was a Kendall's idea, and that's why we call him the Ideas Man, because it was such an absurd, stupid idea that we ran with. Like, Kendall was just like, what if, hey, hear me out here, hear me out, what if all the black and white animals on the planet were aliens? <laughs> it was just like, okay. And then we wrote, like, uh, like a 10,000-word novella on it, <laughs> like the three of us. Have you ever looked into the eyes of your beloved little puppy? and wondered what he was thinking. Your fluffy little kitty, 
your marbled salamander. What do you think's going on in his cute little head? Do you think he wants a treat? To be let out? Maybe to go for a walk? What if you could find out what was really going on? I can tell you. But are you sure you really want to know? Travelcast Productions is proud to present something that you may not be ready to hear. Black and white animals. Secret weapons. Your, your excellency, the portal, it, it... Spit it out, you whimpering fool. Droll composed himself. The portal has not been opened, sire. What? Screamed the emperor. Why not? The secret weapons, the black and white animals, they seem to have revolted. The portal opened only for a minute, your highness, and a letter was passed through before it closed. What letter? What did it say? The Emperor's fury was beyond words, and it was evident that Droll's unfortunate life would most likely be ending very soon. It's from the Secret Forces commander, Ling Ling the Panda. He merely says, We've grown rather fond of this planet's bamboo, and have decided to keep it for ourselves. Blue flames of anger blazed in each of Murtat's five eyes. His breathing was heavy, and his many jagged appendages heaved in a thick, slow rhythm. His jaws quivered with hate and rage. He rose slowly from his silver throne, and his attendants shrunk back in fear. In a pained whisper, he muttered, Ling, ling. His clenched talon shot into the air and trembled with violence. His mighty voice bellowed throughout the stone corridors of his palace. I'll get that panda! To be continued. the back and forth between the ending of that thing uh, without giving away spoilers was quite heated, I remember. I still feel like uh, there there was a potential or some better endings out there for the uh, Black and White series, but uh, nevertheless, it's, it still holds a fond place in my heart. And uh, those rights, TV and movie, are available uh, to those big Hollywood big licks out there. They are, probably for a negotiable fee. I would think it'd be pretty accessible. I mean, uh, I've seen that, you know, what is it? Uh, Lord of the Rings got like a billion dollars or something. There's an Amazon a billion dollar series. We could undercut and that. So we don't want anything like that. Yeah, we're, we're not even asking for a billion dollars. Not even a billion. Now, if you remember, the plot of that thing was that there was one soccer mom whose son was uh, was kidnapped by the black and white animals. And the black and white animals were kind of an anti-hero. 
was Ling Ling the panda. Right. And he was the one that was started realizing he was under the mind control of these aliens. And he was like, no, I have to do something better. And uh, so I think Ling Ling would be an interesting casting uh, decision as well as Brenda, the soccer mom. I always saw uh, Marissa Tomei as a Marissa, the soccer mom, and especially she's gone to that role. She's still a beautiful woman and uh, a great actress. My favorite memory of that whole thing was the third episode. Everyone loved the second piece of that so much because it, it had a huge dramatic ending. Right. And then, and we were all on the same page, the three of us. And then the third one was whenever we were all like, I think you wanted to go a really gory route. I had more like hopeful ideals to have this glorious kind of ending that brought together peace and understanding. And Luke came over to my house and we really like sat up to like midnight drinking and trying to hash out the ending of this. And it all started, it's black and white animals that are aliens, by the way. So it's so stupid. And we just put so much effort and time into it. And to me, that said the Drabblecast of that era, you know, stories that were just so ridiculous. But when you take them seriously, they... <laughs> they get taken seriously, believe it or not. I think Kendall had written uh, quite an ending, and we just scrapped it and wrote something different. And I don't, I feel like he didn't even know that until the recording came out or something. <laughs> Norm's going to do what Norm wants to do as host uh, and yeah, narrator. Well, I had Luke buy in, though. That was the, the key thing. You know, I was trying to keep the trilogy of power going there, and uh, Luke was helped write the ending of it. And, and, you know, it wasn't a bloodbath. You had Brenda getting killed. I just couldn't see that happening, you know? I mean, Ooh. I remember when this one story came down the tubes called Perfect Down Further and uh, being like, ah, this one made it to the final round list, and that means Kendall approved it. I read it. I, I like it okay. It's not great. I don't think we should approve it. And then uh, to go into Luke as the final piece of information and say there, and uh, do you remember that story, Luke, what, what that was about? Uh, I really don't, actually. It was about a narwhal, I think, Kendall. Wasn't that right? He was sleeping in his makeshift room on the mid-deck when he woke up gagging. Expending more effort than he thought usual, he started to make his way up the main deck for some fresh air. He noted how the hall seemed to be inclined, but discarded it as a case of vertigo. When he finally got outside, he was surprised to see a raging storm battering the Great Commission and what appeared to be lifeboats seemingly miles away from the vessel. They must have forgotten me, he thought. Frantically, he bolted to the boat's hull to confirm that all the lifeboats had indeed departed. He began to panic, but a fiercely cold wind sent a sobering shiver down his spine. The arctic blast briefly made him question his location before his required safety briefing flashed into his mind. Heart pounding, he ran back into the cabin that housed the emergency equipment and returned to the deck with the life raft in hand. After securing his life vest, he inflated the raft as he dropped it over the side rail. Spying what he estimated to be a 30-foot drop into the raft below, he said a quick prayer, crossed his arms over his chest, and jumped. His head landed first into the mostly inflated raft with a marked thud. There must be an easier way to do that, the man thought, before drifting into unconsciousness. <clears throat> excuse me. I say, excuse me, sir. The man blinked and shook his head, oblivious to the fact that he had just fallen asleep. He was fighting back the urge to retch when the odd voice spoke again. Are you okay up there? Uh, can you speak, sir? The man was unsure what day it was. Had he just escaped the ship? His severe thirst and shivering body quickly alerted him otherwise. He looked around the life raft, only to find that he was still adrift and that the bird he had heard earlier had evidently abandoned him. 
I'm sure I heard someone talking, he said. Indeed you did, sir, replied the strange voice. Look over here. The man was disturbed to see that he was looking down at what appeared to be a talking beluga whale swimming alongside his raft. Well, I guess this is it. Oh, yeah. There's, oh, well. there's a Life of Pi ripoff, kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't think those were a thing yet. It turns out that Kendall was the one that wrote that story as a pseudonym, Max Craft, which was like a pretty <laughs> weird. We didn't know the whole time. And here I am being like, I don't know. I don't so shouldn't get it. And Luke eventually came around, so he produced it. But I went the back and forth with Kendall, unbeknownst to me, Kendall as Max Craft on edits. And Kendall's like, I don't know. We should keep this part in. And I'm like, I don't know. Let's keep that. We ended up producing it, and I was happy with it in the end. And then, then Kendall tells me, that he wrote the story after all was said and done. Like six years later. I don't think <laughs> yeah. you, uh, I still don't think I told you until much later. Well, it was a good story. And uh, speaking of hashtag sloppy seconds, it was also the second time that we had done that on the podcast because I myself had fooled you guys into a couple stories to be approved that were uh, myself under a pseudonym that I don't think anybody knows to this point, aside from maybe you guys, that J. Allen Pierce was, was actually Norm trying to slide stories through the slush pile. And the first time I did that was the story called um, The One That Got Away, which was these two fishermen that, that caught a merbaby. Christ, what the hell is that thing? Hell if I know, but it ain't no speckled perch, I can say that much. Ain't no thing from the sea supposed to have arms like that. Marty, what the hell are you talking about? You ain't no biologist. Terrence, in all your years casting nets in this bay, you ever seen anything with arms that also got fins? You telling me this thing's natural? What are you saying? It's a freaking alien or something? I'm saying it ain't supposed to be here. Getting all trekky on me here, Marty. Oh, for God's sakes. I ain't saying it's some alien. I'm saying it ain't no natural thing in this bay. Regular Charlie Darwin, this guy. Hey, Marty, you are uh, taking night classes or something up at the university? I swear to God, Terrence, you're lucky I'd never hit no lady, you little fruit. Right, because I'm the one that uses lavender breeze conditioner. Right, Terrence, Angela buys that shit because you get two for one at Rite Aid. Uh, wait, wait, what'd you just say? I said you was a little trekky-ass fruit basket who uses lavender conditioner on what little Hayes got left on his... No, before that. Darwin. Shit. You think this here fish thing is some sort of... What do you call him? A missing links or something? What the hell you talking about, Marty? One of them uh, prehistoric, uh, you know, silo crants or something. Oh, Marty. We got a real-life natural wonder here in this boat, and you sitting there talking some nonsense. I don't remember what they're called. It was a dialogue piece back and forth, and I don't know, you just want to, you know, you, you have that urge to create stories, but at that point, you know, you're accepting stories and buying them from other people, but you're, the urge is still there, you know? So you got to do a pseudonym, I guess. And I think I sold three stories to Drabblecast without us knowing it was me. Should have kept going, Kendall. Maybe Wait, you are. For did all you take... Did you take the payment? Uh, yeah, I took the payment and paid it myself. I mean, I just put it oh, right back in. Oh, you asshole. <laughs> no, I, I'm pretty sure Max Craft uh, was a free. Isn't that was totally pro bono story? Well, I mean, by paying myself, I put him right back into the coffers of the, the Drabble. I mean, I paid uh, all our uh, authors and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sure. You, can, you can look at my taxes, buddy. This is going to be how the <laughs> this is going to be how the IRS finally takes down Norm Sherman. <laughs> right. <laughs> finally, after all these years of well, well speaking of payment. 
Speaking of payment, I, I know, uh, Luke, did you ever get any uh, payment for <laughs> any of your great work? Uh, I don't believe I did, no. Well, you guys were writing well, stories. I, that was I back before. And I, certainly, I certainly did a lot more work than Luke. And uh... All right, cool. Well, thanks, guys. Editor Matthew Bay was to step in in 2010, and things started getting a little more organized and polished. And another notable thing occurred that year. Travelcast and the science fiction podcast Escape Pod and its affiliates like Pseudopod began an informal partnership which sent a huge chunk of new listeners our way that would become enduring fans to this day. In the year 2010, you saw Travelcast win its first Parsec Award for Best Speculative Fiction Podcast, and you started to see stories like Mongoose by Elizabeth Baer and Sarah Monette, as well as Original Commissions and the beginning of our much-lauded Lovecraft Month. Things were about to get really cooking in general, all on part two of the Travelcast, Ten Years of Strange Stories. I can say wrong, I can say wrong, that's how I know my life. 